Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit. Today, I'm bringing you Grand Rounds. Let's listen in. This is our first Grand Round for 2024, and we, we are a treat today. Dr. Stark is expert nationally, internationally known on tuberculosis for more than 40 years of experience. And Dr. Tess Barton is going to introduce him. Dr. Barton, go ahead and start the presentation. Great. Thank you and good morning. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Stark. So Dr. Jeff Stark is a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Um, His major area of expertise has been tuberculosis in children. Um, He's taken care of more than 1,000 children with TB disease. He's authored more than um, 170 papers, 60 chapters on tuberculosis and is the editor of the Handbook of Child and Adolescent Tuberculosis. Um, His research has included diagnostic techniques for TB, pharmacokinetics for anti-TB drugs and treatment trials. He's also served on numerous expert and guideline um, panels, um, including the IDSA, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Thoracic Society, and the CDC and the WHO. In 2021, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Disease, which is a a major award. And then in 2022, he received a Distinguished Research Award from the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society for his very long-standing expertise in tuberculosis. So we wanted to kick off the uh, new semester of Grand Rounds with a really exceptional speaker and a topic of great relevance to both our learners and our community pediatricians. So thank you for Dr. Stark for coming. Thank you so much. First, let me thank the Grand Rounds Committee and Dr. Barton for inviting me. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be talking to you this morning about something I truly love and something I actually know something about. So that's kind of fun to do. So my 40 years in childhood TB, my how things have changed, and I'm going to use that as a framework. We're going to talk about the way things are now mostly, but also to show you how far things have come in a period of time and a few lessons along the way. So I have no conflicts of interest. I will be discussing off-label uses of diagnostic procedures and medications because so much of what we do, especially for TB, is actually not formally approved for use in children. Welcome to the world of infectious diseases. So let me start with just a brief overview of TB in Texas and San Antonio. Texas is one of the four states, along with California, New York, and Florida, that together report a very large proportion of tuberculosis in the United States, almost 50%. So we had about 1,100 cases diagnosed in 2022. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about what's been going on because we had a big drop off during COVID, which didn't represent an actual decrease in TB, it represented decreased detection of tuberculosis. And pretty interesting what's happened since then. For San Antonio specifically, as of September of 2023, already had 71 cases compared to 62 cases, I'm sorry, 60 cases the year before. And you can see in the table down below the the Texas jurisdictions with the most reported cases. So the city of Houston and Harris County are are my two areas mainly, although we also have other counties like Fort Bend surrounding us that have a fair number of cases as well. And you see Bear County in there is about 6% of all the tuberculosis cases in the state of Texas, maybe a little bit higher than that this year. 
So <clears throat> I start many lectures with this slide. Tuberculosis is a social disease with medical implications. And what I mean by that is that TB is a disease that loves human misery. It tends to arise during periods of famine and war and all kinds of different problems for the human race. This is a picture that I took in Uganda at a, at a clinic there. The mother has pulmonary tuberculosis. There's a child off camera you can't see. It's her four-year-old with pulmonary tuberculosis. And this little baby in her arms actually has tuberculous meningitis. Um, this baby died two days after this photo was taken because the mom couldn't afford tuberculosis medicines and the Uganda Health Department had run out of tuberculosis medications that this child needed to take. And I'm just kind of reminding us about the state of certain health problems in the world. This is a very much international disease, and, and I hope a few of the statistics coming up soon maybe even startle you a little bit. So the great paradox of TB, cautionary tale, those of you who might be interested in global, hey. global or public health. So by the use of drugs and BCG vaccines right now, we can cure TB disease for very, very, very little money. We can prevent progression of tuberculosis infection to disease. And we can prevent a significant proportion of the life-threatening causes of tuberculosis in young children by BCG vaccination. That's why BCG vaccine is given to protect young children from developing life-threatening disease. It's not an instrument of TB control. You know, smallpox vaccine got rid of smallpox. BCG vaccine will never get rid of tuberculosis. It simply doesn't prevent enough contagious cases to do that. Yet despite all this, TB remains one of the three greatest infectious disease menaces in humans. And now that COVID has died down a little bit, TB is back on top of the list of infectious diseases that cause mortality in the world. Pretty sad state of affairs, really. So I'm just gonna tell you about a recent case we had in Houston, ongoing case. This is a six month old US born female with no previous medical history who presented with a week of fever, cough, and congestion in the setting of an abnormal chest X-ray. This is, we are, we kind of already knew that her grandfather had TB and we knew that through contact tracing. The kid's skin test was zero millimeters. The grandfather's expert result was positive for TB and had rifampin resistance, which is the marker of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis in most cases. And this is what the child's chest X-ray looked like, pretty nasty looking chest X-ray with all that disease in the right lung. Now think about it, if this kid had pneumococcal pneumonia or staph pneumonia with an x-ray that looks like this, um, that kid would be incredibly sick. And this child was a little bit sick, but not that bad. So we have a saying in TB that the chest x-ray is often sicker than the patient. The patient may have fairly mild symptoms and the x-ray can look just god awful. The child was started on multiple drugs that we use. Now picture trying to get this medication regimen into a six month old. Levofloxacin, linazolid, ethambutol, PZA, and then amikacin. And then rifampin was given it initially in case the result was a false positive from the expert, which does happen sometimes. But then we learned that the isolate was in fact resistant to INH, rifampin, PZA, and streptomycin, but did not have any resistance mutations. We sent it to the CDC that does whole genome sequencing, and there were no resistance mutations for the fluoroquinolones, linazolid, amikacin, the newer drugs, bedaquin, the old leprosy drug, clofazamine, that we're now using, and then ethambutol as well. So the drug regimen was changed to linazolid, levofloxacin, ethambutol, cycloserine, and amikacin. We actually measured drug levels. That's a new thing in tuberculosis that never used to be done, but we are now measuring drug levels, particularly in children with serious disease, to make sure we really are giving them the, the doses of medications that they need to be getting. 
The kid was vomiting with levofloxacin and suspension, but when we changed to pills, tolerated well. Just giving you an idea of how complicated and difficult this is. There's no, fortunately no laboratory abnormalities, and the kid is actually doing really well. Just saw in clinic last week is gaining weight. The chest X-ray is better. We finally did get the child on uh, bedaquiline clofazamine, which are two of the now generally recommended medications for treating MDR-TB. We used to give children injections for 12 to 18 months. Intramuscular injections, or in the United States more often, IV therapy with amikacin or streptomycin. Now we use all oral regimens, even for the treatment of multidrug-resistant TB, which is a, an incredible improvement in care. And then this is the x-ray after just four weeks of therapy, already some improvement and continuing to get better. So the global epidemiology of tuberculosis in 1983, we had no idea what it was. The WHO kept virtually no statistics. They didn't break down cases by age. They, and, and we knew that the vast, vast, vast majority of tuberculosis cases in children just simply weren't being reported. So interestingly, that means that it, organizations interested in child survival, such as UNICEF, Save the Children, Medicine Sans Frontieres, were doing nothing with tuberculosis because they, they didn't have any idea what the nature of the problem actually was. We now know that there's approximately 1.2 million annual cases and 230,000 deaths from tuberculosis in children, and it is squarely on the map now. It's one of the top 10 causes of mortality in children throughout the world, and this, this is current statistics. Remember, this is a treatable, preventable disease, so something is wrong. Why is it so important to get these accurate measurements? Well, to allocate resources all along the healthcare spectrum, to raise awareness among pediatric providers, the recognition of the issue, as we said, among child survival experts and planners, funders, governments, researchers, all kinds of things. And in the last 10 years, there's been a revolution in the study of childhood tuberculosis throughout the world, largely because we now have accurate numbers and people are interested. So 2013 was the first year that WHO even tried to make an estimate, and they estimated a little over half a million annual cases and 74,000 deaths in non-HIV-infected children. They had no way of even estimating in HIV-infected kids. And then several modeling studies were done that gave about the same answer in the neighborhood of a million annual cases, and, and most of them occurring in about 22 high-burden countries. And that led to the estimates now using much better epidemiologic techniques of 1.2 million annual cases and 230,000 deaths. Now that's a crude mortality rate of somewhere around 20%. So guess what the mortality rate was in the pre-chemotherapy era before we had any treatment? It was around 20%. So what does that tell you? Well, Pete Dodd did this modeling study and looked at estimated 239,000 deaths and I'm gonna just jump right down to the red lettering. More than 96% of the deaths occurred in children not receiving treatment. They were misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, never sought care, died too quickly to get under care, and all kinds of reasons. So, so that's the hole that we're in right now internationally. So now we know TB is a top 10 cause of death and a key omission from all the previous analyses done of under five mortality, why it's so important to measure and get accurate data. How we lower childhood TB rates in the United States, which we've done quite well. Well, family-centered contact tracing 
you know, the testing that pediatricians that we do in offices and so forth, it's a good thing and it prevents future cases of tuberculosis. But the real organization, if you will, that in the United States that prevents childhood TB is the health department by finding Uncle Eddie. I always talk about Uncle Eddie who has TB and getting to his favorite nephew, Johnny, who has been around Uncle Eddie, who's been sharing the air with Uncle Eddie. We can hopefully find Johnny before he's infected or if he's infected, we can treat him so he doesn't develop disease. Or if he has early disease, we can treat him so that disease does not progress and cause more damage to him and the family. Screening and treating high-risk children and adolescents is also important, but nowhere near as important as uh, family contact tracing. Obviously, having the best diagnostic of modalities available and then adequate funding of TB programs, which had dried up in the 1970s and 80s, leading to the big resurgence of TB that occurred during that period of time. There was an almost 20% increase in TB and in childhood TB in the early 1980s. And HIV was part of the reason why, because obviously people with HIV are so vulnerable to tuberculosis. I remember at Ben Taub Hospital, where I practiced back in the day, the TB clinic and, and HIV pay clinic patients actually shared a waiting room before we knew any better about the association between those two, now known as the cursed duet, actually, those two, because each one makes the other one worse. We know about congregate settings and, and, and we, with genotyping, we can tell where TB is being transmitted. Obviously, immigration is an issue as well. And finally, and most importantly for the US, poor tuberculosis control when things just don't get done well. And we've had a recent example of that with COVID. So this is the TB, number of TB cases and incident rates by origin of birth from 1993 to 2020. And you can see the pink, blue, the pink bars are US born persons and the blue bars are non US born persons. And there's been a pretty steady decrease, but it's almost entirely within the pink bars. So the proportion of people who are foreign born who have TB in the United States has been increasing all during this time. So it's now about over two thirds of folks with TB were born outside the United States. Not true for children, however. The vast majority of children with tuberculosis in the United States were born in the US, although 80% of them have some connection with a foreign born person who likely was the um, source case for their particular disease. But notice in 2020, this very sudden decrease in the number of cases, and that's the COVID effect. So remember at the beginning of COVID, people weren't seeking healthcare. People were afraid to go to clinics and hospitals because that's where people were catching COVID. And so there was a huge fall off. The other problem is this, what did we do in the beginning of COVID? Contact tracing. Who's really good at contact tracing? TB people. So what happened was health departments were raiding the, the personnel of TB programs to go do COVID and TB simply wasn't getting done. So here's one Houston TB COVID story for you, not at my hospital, but a seven month old was admitted with fever, cough, pneumonia and required oxygen, was COVID positive, got sicker, intubated, started on remdesivir and prednisone plus some antibiotics, progressive disease, worse and worse and worse and finally died. And only at autopsy was it found that what this child actually had, actually died from, was widely disseminated tuberculosis, frankly, probably made worse by the corticosteroids that were being used to treat COVID. The, the organism was genotyped and it was found to be identical to an outbreak strain that was occurring in Beaumont, Texas. And only then 
was the history elicited from the mother that she and the child were functionally homeless, were going back and forth between Beaumont and Houston, and probably that's where he picked up the organism and then came back in Houston where unfortunately he fell ill and died. So what was the effect on COVID on TB in the United States? Well, we had a 21% drop in reported cases year to year. That can't possibly be real. There's no way TB can change like that. We had delayed and missed diagnoses, increased mortality and morbidity. Again, as I said, the diminished TB public health staffing. Replacement of TB staff, if it occurred at all, has occurred with inexperienced staff. And if there's folks in the health department listening, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say, but that problem is continuing now, where I know in Houston, several of our health departments have folks doing TB. They work as hard as they can, but they don't know TB. And so things are just not going as well as it was going before. And since children depend absolutely on health departments and contact tracing, it's a particular problem for childhood tuberculosis. And then not maybe a true decrease in transmission caused by masking and distancing, but frankly, that, that probably was not very much of the effect at all. And this is just the nicest study that's been done about the association between TB and COVID in California. They looked at statistical associations between the two infections and found people with TB had an increased incidence of pulmonary cavities, possibly because of delay in diagnosis, longer period of symptoms. They were older and in California, more likely to be Hispanic or Latino. They resided in low health equity census tracts. Again, TB loves human misery. <clears throat> Diabetes was a risk factor, but the last two bullets are the important ones. There was greater than twice the risk of death due to TB if TB patients all also developed COVID, but 20 times mortality than matched patients with COVID alone. So COVID patients were much more likely to die if they also had tuberculosis as well. So if TB and HIV was the cursed duet, I would call TB and COVID the cursed duet light. So how do we conceive of TB? Well, and we do this, by the way, we don't use the word latent in pediatrics anymore. It's been expunged from the red book and so forth. It's an unnecessary word. People don't realize prior to the 1990s, the word latent was never used. I was actually at the meeting where the internist add, added the word latent. But we simply, I simply think of this as TB infection. Your child has the germ inside the body and the purpose of the medicine is to kill the germ before the child gets sick. Really simple. Tuberculosis disease, your child has the germ and it's causing mischief and we need to treat the child to, to get rid of that infection completely. So what do we mean by latent TB infection? Positive, positive test of infection, either skin test or IGRA. Normal x-ray, no symptoms, not infectious. And then active TB disease. I don't use the word active either because it's unnecessary. All right, so we all understand that. But we, we now know it's actually much more complicated. And I'm just going to go over a little bit of this slide. We actually knew this from the pre-sanitary era also. There probably are people who get the infection, but then just resolve it. There are people who have the infection. It remains latent or dormant, and they may never develop disease. But then there are people who can rapidly reactivate and get really sick really fast. And of course, children are, are in that. Really, the extreme example of that is so-called primary TB, where children get sick right during the initial infection. But we now know that there are patients who develop so-called cyclical disease, or also known as subclinical TB. And this used to be known as open and closed tuberculosis back in the pre-sanitary era. So there are people that have TB, they develop some disease, they're sick for a while, certainly may be contagious, but then they kind of self-heal. And so they get better without any specific treatment. And this is a cycle that can occur over and over. 
We now know from some really good epidemiologic studies that in India, literally half the transmission of tuberculosis is occurring from these folks with subclinical TB. And because they don't get that sick, they may not seek medical care. Because they're not that sick, if they do seek medical care, often TB isn't thought about or isn't diagnosed. Um, their sputum smears are less likely to be positive and so forth. So the epidemiology in adults in particular is really much more complicated, and we're starting to understand this much better, leading to better measures to try to control and prevent the disease, more aggressive measures to find these subclinical folks. Pardon me. So how do we diagnose TB infection? Well, in 1983, we actually had three different skin tests. We had the traditional five tuberculin units. We had a one tuberculin unit if we were afraid the person would have a really strong reaction to the five tuberculin. And then we had a 250, 50 times the antigen to try to bring out a positive result. But the problem is most of those problem uh, uh, results that were brought out were really from non-tuberculous microbacteria or previous BCG vaccination, not actually from tuberculosis infection itself. Well, now we have the interferon gamma release assays, quantiferon and T-spot. And it raises the very significant question, is it time to dump the tuberculin skin test? And I can tell you in my TB clinic, we haven't done a TB skin test in probably 10, 12 years, haven't done a single one. Um, we just celebrated in, 20, in, in 2021, and I use that in quotes, the, the 100th anniversary of the tuberculin skin test. I don't know if any other test has been around for 100 years. And let me just remind you, it's a bump on the arm. And if you think anybody can tell the difference between a nine millimeter reaction and an 11 millimeter reaction, you're just kind of fooling yourself in terms of the significance of it. So it's, it's really a test that I think needs to go. The issue here is also sensitivity and specificity. And I don't like formulas very much. So sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity is the likelihood of the test being positive given that you have the condition. Specificity is the likelihood of the test being negative given that you don't. Whereas positive predictive value is is given that you have a positive test, what's the likelihood that you have the condition? So we don't control sensitivity and specificity. That's inherent to the test. But what we control is positive and negative predictive value by who we choose to test. So if we test people that have a 90% prevalence, we go into a TV sanitarium, the positive predictive value is 99%. That is 99% of the people who test positive actually have TB infection. Pretty darn good. But if we apply the same test to a population that has a prevalence of 1%, say school children in San Antonio in a fairly well-off neighborhood, to be perfectly blunt, then the positive predictive value drops to 15%. That is 85% of the positives are actually false positives due to non-tuberculous mycobacteria, previous BCG, or just non-specific reactivity. So we wanna test people on the left side of the screen, but we don't wanna test people necessarily on the right side of the screen. Uh, and how do we go about doing that? And that's the problem. So one thing we've done is change the number of millimeters that we call positive. So when we lower it to five, we increase sensitivity, but at the cost of specificity. So what do those people have in common? Either that they do have or an increased risk of progression to TB disease. So we would rather over-diagnose them than under-diagnose them. If they have significant immunocompromise, if they're a recent contact to a case, or if we suspect they might even have TB disease. 10 millimeters is the cutoff for other people who have certain risk factors and greater than 15 for no risk factors. But even at 15 millimeters, if there's no risk factors, the majority of the positives still are false positive results.
So now we have the quantifiron, the, the interferon gamma release assays, quantifiron, which is the more common one, but T-spot. I'm going to say there's no difference between them. A lot of people think T-spot may be a bit better, but officially there's no difference between them. And whereas tuberculin used for the TB skin test has hundreds of antigens, these tests have only three antigens in the case of quantifiron and two antigens in the case of the T-spot. And they do not cross-react with the vast majority of environmental microbacteria, particularly Mycobacterium avium complex. And they also do not cross-react with BCG. They do cross-react with BCG bovis, the natural infection, but they do not cross-react with BCG vaccine. So we would immediately think that these tests are going to be much more specific, and they are. The question on them has always been, are they as sensitive as the TB skin test? And that's why there have been some age restrictions, because in young children, we are much more concerned about the sensitivity of the test. A one-year-old with untreated TB infection has a 55% chance of developing disease, and they get nasty disease like meningitis and disseminated TB, whereas healthy adults have a 5 to 10% chance of developing tuberculosis disease. So sensitivity has always been the issue in pediatrics and why for a while we said don't use them below age five. And then as we got more data, we said don't use them below age two. And now we're going to change again. So pro-tuberculin skin test, it's familiar. We know it. It's cheap, very cheap, but the cutoffs are based on the likelihood of getting disease, which is really what we're interested in, right, is preventing disease. In favor of the IGRAs is they're much more specific. They only require one visit. They don't, nobody has to come back and have the test looked at in red. There's only one cutoff by the, it's a laboratory value. So it's much easier to interpret and frankly, loss of expertise with the tuberculin skin test. We, people just don't do it as much and don't, aren't as experienced in interpreting and reading them as well. There are false positive IGRA results and we don't even know exactly why this happens. Some sort of nonspecific reaction that occurs. Interestingly, there's studies with the T-spot that show that false positives tend to go up a little bit during allergy season. And so maybe you're just kind of revved up a little more, producing more interferon gamma for a variety of different kinds of stimulants. So it's now recommended that if a person unexpectedly has a low-level positive result with an IGRA, and most for us, this is mostly kids who were born in other countries, and that's the only reason that we're testing them. There's no Uncle Eddie. There's no known exposure. There's no other risk factor. They're otherwise healthy, pardon me, but we're testing them because they came to us from another country. If they have a low-level positive, the recommendation is to do a second test, and you can do the same IGRA again, or you can do the other one, which is what we usually do and you act on the results of the second test. So if the second test is positive, even a low-level positive, you should consider that positive and treat the person as if they have tuberculosis infection. Whereas if the second test is negative, you assume they do not have tuberculosis infection and you act accordingly. Um, and I'm gonna show you some data about this and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm pretty in tune with what's going on all over the country. I have not yet even heard of a single case of a child in that situation who went on to develop tuberculosis disease. And, and certainly that hasn't happened in our clinic in Houston as well. So of course we minimize false positive results by only testing people who actually need it. And, and that's a really important uh, thing here. We don't wanna just be testing everybody in the population um, because we'll just raise the number of false positive results and that's a problem. So this is a really nice study that was done some years ago where they took people at high risk of TB infection, mostly foreign born folks, and they did all three tests. They did quantifiron, T-spot, 
tuberculin skin tests. So there is no gold standard for TB infection, right? Except a person who's got a positive culture because they have disease. But that's not what we're looking at here. So they did a, a statistical uh, manipulation called latent class analysis, which is a way of sort of making a um, gold standard when one doesn't actually exist. It's a legitimate statistical procedure. And here's what they found. For, for people hey, greater than five years of age, um, they found that the positive predictive value for the skin test was just about 60%, whereas for quantifiron and T-spot, it was 97, 98%. And if we look at kids less than five years of age, it was only 10% for the tuberculin skin test. Most of these kids had had BCG vaccine, whereas for the quantifiron and the T-spot, it was substantially, substantially higher. So if we put the statistics into print, it, it looks like this. For people greater than five, the skin test was little better than a coin flip in predicting who actually had tuberculosis infection. And for, the, for kids less than five, almost all of the positive skin test results were actually false positive results. And that certainly mirrors what we've been seeing in TB programs in a variety of different ways. So what the data support is the recommendation to do either if you do a skin test and it's positive, then follow it up with a quantifiron or a T-spot and act on the results of the IGRA, or just do the IGRA initially and act on those particular results. And, and now, here's, here's summary of data at less than two years of age. And I will say for disclosure, I was a co-author on this paper. So it was a literature review of experience with IGRAs in children under two years of age. It included six studies, different cohorts, kids, most of these kids were case contacts. Those are the ones we're really interested or were born in TB endemic regions. And these kids were all followed by three to five years post-testing. Here's what they found. Zero of 575 untreated children with negative IRA test results progressed to tuberculosis disease. Now, remember, we said under two, between zero and one, we expect 50% to develop disease. And between one and two, 25%. So we would have definitely expected cases of TB if these kids were, were infected and didn't get treated, yet not a single one developed disease, including specifically 70 who were skin test positive and IGRA negative. So we now feel very comfortable and the 2024 Red Book is actually gonna totally remove the age restriction for IGRAs. It's gonna say you can do them in children of any age when a, when a skin test otherwise would have been used or indicated. And all the indications for doing IGRAs are exactly the same as they were previously were for doing tuberculin skin tests. So this is a huge, huge change um, that I think is really gonna knock down the number of false positive results that we see in a variety of venues. So how do we diagnose TB disease? Well, in 1983, we had the skin test. We had AFB stain and culture. There was no PCR, there was none of that. Gastric aspirates were pretty much the only source that were ever used for diagnosing TB disease in kids. And if we took 100 kids with clinical pulmonary tuberculosis, we would be lucky if we could confirm 30 of them with microbiology. And in fact, usually it's much less than that. Um, chest X-ray was the only real radiologic modality that was used. Didn't have CAT scan back then even. So now, of course, now we have the IGRIS and now we have PCR giving us a much more rapid diagnosis. We have new culture and sources for these, including sputum, nasogastric, and now doing um, PCR on stool is something that's being rolled out all over the world. Um, 20 to 50% of cases are now microbiologically confirmed, both in the United States and internationally. And now, of course, we have ultrasound and CT and MRI and all kinds of other modalities that have helped tremendously for diagnosing, particularly extrapulmonary tuberculosis, TB meningitis as well.
So having said all that, even in high income countries, the gold standard for diagnosis of TB remains the triad of a positive test of infection, an abnormal chest X-ray or physical exam, or in a history of recent contact to an infectious adult case. If we get microbiologic confirmation, that's great. That's a cherry on top. But the truth is we achieve that less than half the time. That's why contact tracing is so important because if we find Uncle Eddie, we find the source case, it means, first of all, it increases the positive predictive value of all the tests that we do on the child that helps us really determine, yes, this child really does have tuberculosis. And we can use the susceptibility testing, the drug susceptibility testing from Uncle Eddie's isolate to determine the correct medical treatment for a little cut for little nephew Johnny as well. So again, health department, contact tracing, critical importance for pediatric TB. The other thing now is we have the, the, the gene expert, um, which can in two hours identify mycobacterium tuberculosis DNA and whether or not there is DNA present that confers rifampin resistance. I put up there a single cup coffee maker because that's really kind of what it's like. You take just a little bit of the sample and you put it in a cartridge and put it in the machine. And two hours later, it does all these PCR cycles and it tells you whether or not that DNA is there that you need to know. And this again is revolutionized diagnosis. Um, what it has replaced mostly is the AFB smear of the sputum, which is a terrible test in pediatrics. The, the percentage that are positive is extraordinarily low. And it's allowed us to diagnose more cases in children much more rapidly. It's still less than 50% of all the cases, but these are all incremental improvements, which again, in high burden countries, these really make a very big difference. So how do we evaluate a child with suspected TB disease? Well, again, I put it at the top of the list, evaluate family members, other contacts. If I have a child comes in and I'm concerned has TB meningitis, I'm on the phone to the health department to report that as a suspect case because I want them to go out and do, in essence, an emergency contact tracing. Because if it, I'm not going to know right away if this kid has TB meningitis. It's going to be based on clinical symptoms mostly and then MRI imaging if it looks like tuberculosis. And then also maybe on analysis of CSF as well. But we rarely get early microbiological confirmation. But if they can go out and find out that there's someone who's been in this child's environment who is sick and then rapidly diagnose that person with TB, well, that tells me my child probably really does have tuberculosis. Um, and so health department, contact tracing, part of the diagnosis of the child who comes in sick with possible tuberculosis. Remember that you're supposed to report the suspicion of tuberculosis, not the confirmation. If you even suspect that a child has TB, you should be on the phone to the Bear County Health Department, San Antonio Health Authority. Um, it's okay to be wrong. If it turns out not to be TB, that's okay. But that's the, that's all, the only way you're going to find out certain information that you may critically need. We do a test of infection. Of course, we need to do an IGRIT. Now, if I want to maximize specificity, like in an older child, I'm just going to do an IGRIT. But if I want to maximize sensitivity, I want to do more than one test. So I may do both IGRAs and I may even do a tin skin test also, especially if it's Friday afternoon because I can see the skin test on Sunday, whereas the IGRA results may not come back until early the next week. So if we have a kid with, say, possible TB meningitis, we will do a quantiferon and a T-spot and uh, a tuberculin skin test. And we have seen kids come in who often present with, say, acute hydrocephalus because they have um, uh, inflammation at the base of the brain and blockage of flow of CSF. 
they get an emergency EVD, we're thinking, wow, maybe this is TB, um, but we don't have a lot of information. We don't know who the child got it from. We'll do all three of those tests. And I've had times when the quantifuron was negative, the T-spot, uh, the, the skin test was zero millimeters and the T-spot was too numerous to count. And so maximizing sensitivity, you do at least two and maybe all of the tests. We do, of course, the appropriate radiographs. We still do do early morning gastric aspirates. The idea behind early morning is the child's been asleep and bringing up respiratory secretions all night and then swallowing them. And there's not much peristalsis when the child is asleep. So you want to actually get that sample very early in the morning before the child is up and about. And that maximizes the yield of the organism from gastric aspirates. But more and more now we're able to induce sputum and we can induce sputum in kids down to 18 months of age fairly well. You need a really good respiratory therapist because they have to sit there and when we induce the child to cough, which is what we're really doing, they've got to be real quick with a suction catheter before the child swallows whatever it is that they bring up. So this takes a little bit of practice and a little bit of work. Now, in many countries, they're doing nasogastric aspirates for, to do AFB stains and cultures as well. And as I said, now stool is available for uh, nucleic acid amplification, usually PCR. We do a spinal tap automatically on a child with pulmonary TB if they're less than a year of age. Have we found cases of meningitis? You bet. Does it change the therapy? You bet. Between a year and two years, you have to talk me out of it. And then two and above, it's based purely on sort of clinical presentation. Now, this is children with TB disease, not children who present with TB infection. We don't do LPs on those kids. We don't do many bronchoscopies. The culture yields really know better from bronchoscopy than from gastric aspirates. We do bronchoscopies if we're not sure of the diagnosis. There may be something else going on, a foreign body, for instance. And then bronchoscopies can often help distinguish TB from other causes of similar symptoms and radiographic findings. And then it's just that report the suspicion to the health department as soon as you can. So how do we find children with TB infection? Well, 1983, we did contact tracing and contact tracing actually started in Texas as a concept, believe it or not. The original papers were written by my mentor, Catherine Sue, back in the very early 1960s, who showed that contact, how important contact tracing was and how TB really is a family disease. It's a household disease. Uh, when you look at it sometimes in, from um, generations, it almost looks like a genetic disease, like it's passed down from one generation to another, but it's only because it, the most common place still for it to be transmitted is within a household. And then back then we tested every child periodically. Kids would go in annually or every other year and get some kind of a test. There was one called the HEAF test. There were other things before TB skin tests. There was a multi-prong test. So we did screening of everybody. The problem was, in retrospect, that created an awful lot of false positive results. And now that TB is less prevalent in the United States and much more cloistered into risk groups, we know that that general or mass screening is, is not only ineffective, but one might argue harmful because of the creation of all the false positive results. And, and it's harmful, not just because it means more testing, more expense, more treatment, but also anxiety. It creates of, oh my God, where did Johnny get a positive test? Who's got TB? Well, nobody's got TB because this is a false positive result. So now we do contact tracing again for contagious cases, but we periodically test only people who have very defined and very specific risk factors. So what does family-centered contact tracing do? I've already alluded to a lot of these things. You can ide identify recently exposed and infected children. So you can maybe even es prevent establishment of the infection if we have a two-year-old whose uncle 
uh, Eddie was just diagnosed, even if that child has a negative test of infection, a normal chest X-ray, normal physical and no symptoms, we start those kids on medication in case they are infected um, and there hasn't been enough time for the test of infection to turn positive yet. Because remember, right, after you're infected with the TB germ, it may take up to two to three months before your skin test or your eye grant actually turns positive. We actually call that the window. And so kids less than five who are at increased risk of developing disease, we actually treat them. So one of our challenges is to get families is we say, look, your child has a normal eye growth, a normal chest x-ray, normal physical and no symptoms, but we want to start them on medication. Um, and if you explain it really, really well, our, our adherence rate with that is about 98%, but it takes a lot of time to really explain to people why that's so important. And it's all a function of age and likelihood of developing disease. So we can actually sometimes even prevent the infection from being established, but certainly can prevent that infection from progressing to disease. This is not theoretical either. We had a child a few years ago, we saw in October, exposed to a case, 18 month old, everything was negative. We all we wrote the orders to the health department to start the child on medication. And unfortunately the family moved, didn't tell anybody, moved to a different health jurisdiction, never got on therapy and came in in late December with really devastating tuberculosis meningitis. So this stuff isn't theoretical, it's real. We can detect early disease. If we bring in Johnny, who was exposed to Uncle Eddie before he's symptom symptomatic enough to seek care on his own, then he's got much milder disease, much easier to treat, much easier to cure. And finally, prevent dissemination, hospitalization, all that, particularly in the little kids. And it's the only opportunity to determine drug susceptibility for 50 to 70% of the kids with disease for whom we can't find the organism and 100% of the children with infection who by definition, we can't find the organs. So again, why, why this activity is so important and we as pediatricians really need to support health departments to both have adequate resources to do this, but frankly, a little bit hold their feet to the fire to make sure that they really do it in a timely fashion. So how do we treat TB infection and TB disease? And this is probably where the biggest changes have occurred and particularly in the last five to 10 years. And I'm gonna tell you about some stuff that's gonna be in the 2024 Red Book as well. So in 1983, we, we used 12 months of daily INH to treat TB infection. That's 365 doses, keep that number in mind. We used INH and rifampin for 12 months for TB disease. And if we needed a third drug, we actually used streptomycin, IM, intramuscular streptomycin. People didn't use ethambutol back then because it was thought to be toxic to the eyes. We now know that it's really not in children. Uh, people weren't using PZA back then. And again, for MDR-TB, it was like torture to treat these kids with all these different injectable drugs and so forth. Now we have five different regimens to treat TB infection as short as 12 weeks and 12 doses. 365 doses, 12 doses. It's miraculous. We so-called ripe therapy, rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol as standard therapy for TB disease, now as short as four months, four months. And then all oral regimens now for treating uh, multidrug-resistant TB, which is also fairly miraculous. So let's talk about drug resistance in TB. You know, we talk about ethereally for pneumococcus, how resistance occurs and overuse of antibiotics and all this. But what's really cool about TB is we can see it specifically in an individual patient. All the resistance occurs on the chromosome. So the development of drug resistance in TB is a result of a conspiracy. 
among the organism, the patient, the doctor, and the healthcare system. So given the nature of the organism, if the patient messes up and doesn't take the medicines correctly, or the doctor messes up and doesn't prescribe them, or the healthcare system, like in Uganda, messes up and doesn't have them, then it will almost inevitably lead to the development of drug resistance in an adult patient. The reason I'm saying that, children, even when they have disease, have many fewer organisms than adults do. So what we're about to talk about doesn't occur anywhere near as often in pediatric patients as it does in adult patients, and you'll see why in just a minute. So all the resistance occurs on chromosomes. And fortunately, the loci of these different genes is independent of each other. So that means the resistance to the different drugs is independent. There's no plasmid resistance. So there's no grouping of resistance like we see with gram-negative organisms on plasmids where there's you know, multi-class resistance that is transmitted from one organism to another. That doesn't happen here. This is on the, on the chromosome itself. So it's, it's for... Um, uh, selecting out for resistant organisms is how this occurs. So let, let me show you how it occurs. So let's say an adult has capitary TB. They're pretty sick. And it's estimated they have about 10 to the ninth organisms, a lot, lot of bugs. Well, we know that the mutation rate for conferring INH resistance in the genes is about one out of every 10 to the sixth organisms. And we know the rifampin resistance rate is about one out of every 10 to the seventh. So that means by definition, if you have a cavity with 10 to the ninth organisms, you have a thousand organisms that are resistant to INH and a hundred organisms that are resistant to rifampin. Now the laboratory is gonna call this drug susceptible TB because they can't detect resistance down to that really, really low level, but those bugs are there. So what happens if you treat this person with INH alone? Well, they'll get better for a while, they'll feel better, but the INH resistant organisms will start to proliferate. And eventually they'll become the dominant organism. The person will relapse and now have TB that's completely resistant to isoniza. We select it out for the INH resistant organisms. And now also 10 to the second of those organisms, again, will be res resistant to rifampin. So if we just add rifampin now, exactly the same thing is gonna happen. And you're gonna have baseline INH resistance. You're gonna develop rifampin resistance. What do you have now? multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And that's how it occurs. It's, it's a human-made phenomenon based on maltreatment of disease. Whereas if we had treated that patient with both INH and rifampin, the INH would have killed the rifampin resistant organisms. Rifampin kills the INH resistant organisms because the chance of having even one organism resistant to both is about 10 to the minus 13th. We only have 10 to the ninth organisms. So you, you're killing all the organisms and the person is cured. That's the reason for multidrug therapy of tuberculosis and most mycobacterial infections. Very different. You know, pneumococcal, we might use a different drug, but we rarely don't use multiple drugs. But this is why TB is like this. And I actually conceptualize TB more like cancer than I do like other infectious diseases. We talk about logs of cancer cells. We talk about logs of mycobacteria. They talk about induction therapy and consolidation therapy. We talk about initial therapy and continuation therapy, but the principles are much more similar to treating cancer than they are to treating other infectious diseases. We treat people with a single drug for infection and it works. Why? 
Well, if you're only infected with 10 of the fourth or 10 of the fifth organisms, the chance of having even one resistant organism, it's not zero, but it's very, very low. And remember also that not everybody with TB infection will go on to develop TB disease. So that's almost like another log, if you will. So that's why single drug therapy for treating TB infection has been considered very, very effective, whereas TB disease requires multiple drugs to treat. It's all about the, the size of the bacterial population. So where's childhood TB fit into all this? Well, the burden of organisms is likely much lower than in adults, but this has never actually been measured. There's no good way to measure it. There's no animal model for pediatric tuberculosis. Is it closer to TB and disease in adults, or is it actually closer to TB infection? Well, a lot of the pathophysiology of childhood TB is really based on sort of the immunologic reaction, enlargement of lymph nodes in the chest, causing compression on airways, which subsequently leads to atelectasis and then infiltration, as opposed to adults who tend to get parenchymal disease and then cavitary disease as well. So it's a really interesting question. But we do know that the burden is lower. So it raises the question, when does TB infection actually turn into TB disease? Well, from a microbiologic point of view, it's when the number of organisms is high enough that we need to treat with multiple drugs to prevent that resistance from occurring. So what are the x-ray and clinical correlates of that? I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. So we have a convention. And the convention is if we can see it on the x-ray, that is an abnormal x-ray, or we can feel it with our fingers, that is an abnormal physical exam, meaning extrapulmonary TB. And we know that they're infected with TB germs. We call that disease and we treat it accordingly with multiple drugs. And we can particularly do that for pediatrics because kids tolerate the TB medicine so much better than adults tolerate the medications. So much of what we see on a pediatric chest X-ray and likely some of the symptoms again, comes from the immunologic response to the organism, not necessarily the burden of organisms. So if you have two kids in the same family, both of whom were recently infected by Uncle Eddie, and they have positive quantiferons, one has a normal chest X-ray and one has hyaluradenopathy and a little bit of right middle lobe atelectasis, we call the first one infection, we call the second one disease. We treat the first one with regimens for infection, and we treat the second one with regimens for disease. I don't know if there's really that much of a difference, but we don't know any better. And so that's generally what we do. So what's the role of specific drugs? Well, INH and Rifampin are the workhorse drugs because they're bactericidal. They also help prevent the emergence of resistance to the other drugs. Ethambutol is bacteriostatic for the most part, but it also is, it prevents emergence of resistance. That's its major thing. So let's say I treat somebody with the four drugs and unbeknownst to me, they have already existing INH resistant TB because Uncle Eddie had INH resistant TB. Well, ethambutol should prevent those INH resistant isolates from replicating. And remember the host response is involved in some of this too, in, in helping to cure the disease that it may keep that down enough. And then with the rifampin and other drugs, we actually can overcome that problem. Pyrazinamide, we don't really even know what it does. It doesn't kill them in a test tube. It doesn't kill them when you add cells. But we do know from clinical trials that it shortens the length of time it takes for INH and rifampin to have their maximum effect to kill the organisms. And that's really why PZA is in that four-drug regimen. So what do anti-tuberculosis drugs do? They do one thing. They kill germs. That's it. That's all they do. They don't reduce inflammation. They don't shrink lymph nodes. They don't absorb pleural fluid. They don't close cavities. That's all that they do. 
Remember, many children successfully treated for pulmonary TB with a six-month regimen have radiographic abnormalities at the end of therapy. Um, matter of fact, about 30 to 40 percent still have an or uh, improved but abnormal chest X-ray because the germs are probably dead, but we haven't seen the complete healing yet of the effect of the disease on the on the lungs and on the lymph nodes as well. So we don't require normal chest X-rays to stop therapy. Treatment of TB infection has changed incredibly. We used to go for 12 months with INH, and then about 20 years ago, we lowered it to nine months because of the graph that's on this slide. Every dot represents a controlled clinical trial that was done somewhere in the world. And you can see that after nine months of therapy, there's really very little additional benefit in terms of lowering the case rate. So the United States went to nine months of therapy. The WHO recommends six months of therapy. There's about a 20% increase in effectiveness with nine months compared to six months. But as a practical and economic matter, that's why WHO, particularly in, in high burden, um, low resource countries, recommends six months of therapy. That's still 180 doses, though. Rifampin for four months is now considered very effective in, in, in therapy, and that's still 120 doses. You can give INH and rifampin together for three months, that's 90 doses, but the newest regimen, our favorite regimen, we've now given it to over 700 kids in our clinic, is INH and rifapentine once weekly for 12 weeks. Rifapentine is a rifamycin like rifampin, but it has a very, very long half-life. So it allows you to only treat these kids once a week for 12 weeks. Remember in Texas, all tuberculosis medications are free. They're provided by the state. So in San Antonio, you should be able to get from your local health department this regimen, the medications provided for free to the patients and to the families as well. And this is our go-to regimen. There are some limitations. We can't use it in kids less than two because there's no PK data for rifamycins for rifapentine in kids that age. And it only comes so far in 150 milligram caplet. They're working on a pediatric dosage form. And the pill burden, adolescents often have to take 11 or 12 pills when they take this regimen, but they only have to do it 12 times. Um, we dose by weight. Again, large, large pill burden can occur. Um, and most of the time we get rifapentine now. It's not available very well commercially, but again, the state is providing that. There have been shortages in the past, but there's no shortage right now, fortunately. It is expensive if somebody has to try to go out and seek it elsewhere. And in our area, we give it still by directly observed therapy where, and we do a lot of video DOT where the patient videos the taking of the medication and uploads it to a special app that gets sent to the health department. And they can document that the medication is actually being taken. Some jurisdictions do self-administration. We, we like the DOT for the kids and the families don't seem to mind, especially since they can do it at their convenience. Everybody's pretty comfortable with their phones and stuff. Um, so it works really, really well. And our completion rates, even in my TB clinic, our completion rates with, with uh, nine months of INH are about 55%. With four months of rifampin, they're about 75%. And with the, DOT, with the uh, INH and rifapentine regimen, they're about 95 to 98%. So people actually take those medications. So standard treatment for, treatment for TB of drug-susceptible TB, the so-called RIPE therapy, where they take all four drugs for, four, for uh, eight weeks or two months, and then they take usually just isonize and rifampin for the remaining time for a total regimen of six months. What recently published was the so-called SHINE trial that was done in several countries of the world, where they compared six months of treatment with four months of treatment. So for both regimens, the initial treatment was the same. It was the same four drugs given every day. 
But then the continuation part was only two months for the SHINE trial uh, versus four months for the traditional therapy. Um, the decision to choose a regimen was made at not a diagnosis. Um, so this is a really good trial, actually, and I'm just going to cut to the chase. These were their inclusion criteria. The most important one on here is they were supposed to have what was known as non-severe tuberculosis, which by definition, and it was confined to one lobe, no cavities, no significant airway obstruction, no complicated pleural effusion, kind of run-of-the-mill childhood tuberculosis, in other words. Um, and what they found was absolutely no difference. The, the four-month regimen was completely non-inferior, really gave almost identical results to the six-month regimen. And so the 2024 Red Book is going to endorse this as standard therapy for kids with that meet these criteria with the so-called non-severe uh, drug susceptible or presumed drug susceptible pulmonary TB. So that that shortens by by 33% the length of time that a child and a family have, and the health department have to deal with um, therapy. If it's still considered severe TB, meaning it doesn't meet those criteria, the standard six-month regimen is still going to be generally recommended. This has not yet been completely adopted by Texas. And one reason is the CDC has not officially endorsed this. Um, there is a publication that's going to come out pretty soon. It's a combined publication of the ATS, the IDSA, CDC, and so forth that does, in fact, endorse this regimen. It has been endorsed by WHO. So it's going to become standard therapy for childhood TB. Um, there are a few unresolved issues. I'm not going to spend any time on this just because of the time that we have left. Um, but there are still some things that have to be figured out when we're using this regimen or deciding when to use it and when not to use it. We can talk about that in the questions if you want. There's a second new regimen that is for adolescents and adults, not for younger kids, but it's a four-month regimen of INH, rifapentine, pyrazinamide, and moxifloxacin, one of the higher-level fluoroquinolone medications for treatment of tuberculosis disease in, up to and including cavitary pulmonary tuberculosis. And this has been endorsed both by the WHO and by the CDC as a standard regimen for treating these folks. So this is for people aged 13 years of age and above. So we can use this in our adolescent patients. I'm going to close with 10 truths about childhood TB. Adequate TB control for children requires a robust and well-functioning healthcare system. We can prevent childhood TB with simple, inexpensive measures. It can be found earlier when it's easier to treat. Finding and treating adults with TB is not sufficient for controlling TB. I was told that early in, in my career by people at WHO. That is certainly not true. BCG vaccines do some good, but they certainly alone aren't going to control childhood tuberculosis. They don't. Some tests like chest X-ray are more important for children than adults. In much of the world, it's still sputum examinations that, that define whether or not an adult has tuberculosis. They don't even do chest X-ray in many, many places. Many adult cases arise from infection that occurred in childhood. So if we want to address adult TB, we have to address childhood as well. Childhood TB is a window into the effectiveness of TB control. If children are developing TB, it often means something went wrong. There was a delay in a diagnosis or a delay in a contact tracing or something. Um, that tells you how well your system is functioning. Almost all children with TB in the United States are treated with medications designed for adults. Across the world, we now have dissolvable TB medications. They're tablets that can be dissolved in water, and then the child can drink it. And they're available almost everywhere in the world except the United States. 
even though they were developed in the United States with U.S. money. And the reason they're not available here is one of the companies that's involved in the production does not have a license with the FDA and decided has decided that the U.S. market is too small for them to get such a license. So we still are using <laughs> medications that are designed for adults to treat the kids. And finally, childhood TB remains a neglected disease in most of the world. So this is my benediction. My career has been bookended by the pandemics of childhood HIV back in the 80s and now SARS-CoV-2, while the pandemic of childhood TB has kept rolling along, hiding in plain sight. Children are at the forefront of this millennia-old pandemic, and the TB pandemic will continue until we devote all the necessary resources to children, as we are doing with adults. Unfortunately, COVID likely has set these efforts back many years, but we can recover if we really put our minds to it. And I want to thank you for listening um, and uh, uh, hope that, that you've gleaned something from, from this talk about something very dear to my heart. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Stark, for providing us the 40 years of your experience, sharing your experience with us, and educating us on current status of uh, childhood tuberculosis. Let's see if anybody has any questions. I'm watching the, uh, to, uh, the chat box. Barton, you have a question? I do. So, um, so while, so you mentioned earlier on about um, if there is sort of an equivocal um, TB screening test, I guess either the skin test or the or an IGRA, um, that the recommendation is to repeat repeat that test. Um, and and I know that um, for the skin test, I guess there's that phenomenon of boosting where you've mm -hmm. given the skin test, but you're you know, your infection was somewhat remote, I guess, and, and it's, you've kind of forgotten it. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then when you sort of trigger it again with your skin test, you, you get a better response. Is there any equivalent of that for the IGRA? If you give the skin test before you do the IGRA, would you have a better yield on your IGRA? So let me explain so boosting, boosting real quick. Real quick. And Tess, I'm, I'm getting that feedback. Thank you. Um, Boosting simply means if a person was previously sensitized to mycobacterial antigens, and that can be by a remote infection, it can be by remote BCG vaccination, could probably also be by, by micro, non tuberculous mycobacteria. If they haven't seen those antigens for a while, the first time you do a skin test, you'll probably get a negative result. But if you do a second test, the first test wakes up the anamnestic memory of the immune system. So the first test, the immune system's lazy and says, ah, this but then they remember. And then if you do the second test, boom, you get a reaction. So it looks like they've converted their test from negative to positive, when in fact they were low level positive all along. You just don't know why they were. That's because with a TB skin test, you're injecting biological material into the person. With the IGRAs, of course, you're not doing that. You're just simply drawing blood out of the person. There really is no strong evidence that by doing the skin test first, you're going to boost the reaction to the IGRAs. Um, and so um, it, 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 I'm not going to say it never occurs, but there's no strong indication that it's a particularly important phenomenon. So I don't think there's any issue with doing a skin test initially. In fact, we know there are tons of people who've had BCG vaccine. You do the skin test, it's positive, and then you do the IGRA and it's actually negative. So you're even boosting them more. So I don't think that's a real concept, to be honest with you, that skin tests boost IGRA results. 
Thanks for listening to that fascinating Grand Rounds talk. Don't forget to click on the link. See you next week. Thanks for listening.